You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to be in your financial front seat by knowing what you owe, what you own, how to reach your financial goals, and having an annual checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So I don't know how many of you have ever gone through the process of career coaching, where you sit down with somebody who takes a look at you and your skills and your expertise and the marketplace, tries to help you whip it or morph it into better shape than it's in now. Well, that's exactly what we're doing today. We've got Liz Bentley with us. She is a consultant, the founder of Liz Bentley Associates. And with her background in psychology and lifetime of experience in competitive sports and 10 years in sales and management, she's put it all to work helping executives and others in some of the country's biggest, most prominent businesses succeed. So she is here to help us all do a little bit of the same. Hi, Liz. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming into the studio. So I I look at your background and competitive sports I get and management, and how does it all come together to say career coach? So I think, you know, my background, how it helps me today in helping people, I guess, is that uh, my background in sports, you're, you're taught a lot about performance and about mindset. Um, after athletes, as they grow and they grow into higher levels of, of playing, you know, you have to perform at these really important moments. You know, you have to perform in the big games. Those aren't the days you can be sick or hurt. Right. <laughs> so you learn a lot around mindset, around handling nerves, around showing up, around tryouts, around, you know, earning your position, tough coaches, people yelling at you, all of that stuff. And, and that's a it's a good learning model for the workplace when you get older. And I always had a fascination with psychology, human behavior, animal behavior. So studying human beings and helping them rise to be their best selves and perform is um, it's just in- intuitive to me and something I really enjoy doing. And, and the other thing that's, I think, interesting about sports is it's not always the best athlete who succeeds. It's always not the best, the highest IQ that gets the big job, right? Mm-hmm. So there's so many factors that go into performance and helping people really rise in what I call step into their power. You know, when you were discussing that or when you were talking about that, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about those athletes that have to, like, switch it up Mm -hmm. halfway through their game. Tennis players who suddenly discover that their old game is not working for them and they hire a new coach and all of a sudden we start seeing them back at the top of tournaments. You say 50% of occupations that exist today are not going to be here 10 years from now, which says to me, we all need to be able to change. Yes, yes. So how do you prep people for that? And and to take that statistic even further, I was just reading earlier this week about 65% of the jobs will not exist for the school-age children today. So the kids who are in school right now, that we are trying to prepare for, you know, with education and their future, 65% of the jobs won't be here. So the way we 
prepare really is just continually evolving ourselves because the world around us is going to constantly be changing. So our ability to have intuition, to have foresight, to see what the change is going to be, but also even just to be able to adapt as it's happening. It's not that you have to always be first to market. You can be. But more importantly, you have to be recognizing that what is true today will not be the same tomorrow. And that's faster than ever before. How do you sense what changes are coming and get yourself comfortable with the idea that you've got to learn new skills, that what you're good at today may not actually keep you employed tomorrow? Right. Well, that's, again, the danger. Again, most of this is around mindset. So rather than focusing on the specific skills that are going to be changing, because they're everywhere, they're going to be in health, they're going to be in education, they're going to be in technology, they're going to be in mathematics, they're going to be in everything that we're doing. I mean, I was reading about 10 jobs that don't exist today, and one of them was the urban uh, shepherd, you know, a person who's going to work in cities to keep it green, to put up beehives in certain areas and keep the birds. You know, all the things that we still need to keep our environment. So there, in every category, there's going to be shift. But what we have to do as human beings, and we have to teach children, teach ourselves, is be in front of that shift, to be constantly adapting and shifting and not holding on to anything too tight. So if one year the app is the most interesting thing in technology advancement, that we have to understand that might not be interesting in three years. And that's okay. That's okay. We just evolve with it. So... Is there anything that women need to do specifically? I mean, are women better at this than men are? Are women, do we hold on to things longer or more tightly? I think there's a general assumption that women are better at multitasking and evolving than men I haven't seen statistics around that or any research. What I've noticed in women in careers is that they're better at learning lots of skills, but not always good at focusing on one and developing. So they're good at doing a lot of stuff and not always driving one thing forward. Whereas men can be very good at centering and focusing on one thing and driving that one thing over the end line, but not always good at diversifying. Having said that, I think a lot of things are going to change with the generations that are coming into play. I think what women have to focus on the most is evolving their forward movement so that they have a seat at the table. Um, because I think that's in jeopardy at all times. And that will, with the evolution of diversity, that could get even more dangerous. So walk us through that. If I was a woman that you were coaching, whether I'm at a big company or a small company, and you felt like I needed to take that seat at the table, how would you get me there? Well, there are a lot of strategies that go into place on that. But I would even take a step back even first, because let's say what we're doing is you is we're, we're teaching the fu- people coming up in the future to evolve. So it's different for women today than it was for people when 20 years ago who were in their 20s coming into the workforce, is that women can partner and support each other much more today than they ever could before because they're less of a minority. You know, if you look at the top graduate schools and the, the top 10 rankings, half of them are women, whereas it used to be one or no one. So now they can support each other because they're not, they have higher numbers 
than they could in the past. Just that support will advance them more. So shifting their mindset into supporting each other instead of working against each other is one of the biggest shifts. Do you not see that happening already? I see it happening now. I think that's one of the biggest shifts that had to continue because that's going to be so important. It doesn't always happen. The historical mindset of a woman was to compete against each other for the man because that was the only resource for the money and survival, right? I mean, that's only— Or to compete against each other for that one seat at the table. Yes, because it was a minority status issue. So now there's more opportunity, hopefully. But there's still lots of cases where on a board there's only one woman or it's all men or the executive team is all men and there's no women and if there's one— So there's still that going on within reason. To go back to your question on how to get them there— it's a complicated question because it depends on the culture you're up against, the, the stakeholders who are making the decision, her personality, and whether she needs to be toned up or toned down, uh, how everyone's going to receive that. There's a lot of things at play. There's not one science that's exact. And I do this on a regular basis, <laughs> helping women successfully do, you know, get a seat at the table. But it's not a blanket, you know, it's not, oh, good, just go in and ask for what you want. Because you could have a whole bunch of people who think women asking for what they want is rude and inappropriate. That's the only, th- that's the only thing that men can do. <laughs> right. Right. I, this idea of being toned up or toned down yeah. is really interesting. And yes. I'm wondering, how do you get a sense? I mean, I wish I could put you in front of all of our listeners mm-hmm. and say, okay, take a five-minute lesson from Liz. Let her evaluate you and yeah. see if you need to be toned up or toned down. But realistically, we need to listen to you and know how to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So how do you know if you need to be toned up or toned down, if you need to put yourself forward or pull yourself back a little bit? So the first thing you have to think about is who's your audience? So who's your audience? What's their culture? What's their background? What's their style? How do they think? So in some with some audiences, if you're a woman who doesn't know how to tone it up, speak, lean in, speak with authority, um, look people directly in the eye, use hand gestures, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to think you're weak. They're going to think you have nothing to say. They're not going to think you're strong enough for the position. With another audience, if you did all of those exact things, they would think you were too forward. They would think you're too aggressive. They would just wouldn't want you at the table because they think you're going to be annoying because you're going to keep inserting your opinion. So it's about reading the room. <laughs> it's yes. it, and and listening to the feedback the, that you're getting. It is absolutely about thinking about your audience first and what they're going to be responsive to, and then shifting your style to meet that need. If again you're the only woman who's going to get who's going for this position, now you have to do this no matter what. Okay, I teach this to men and women alike, but it's different when you're a minority going for something versus more of a majority. Okay. Okay. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between evolution and change. Mm. But before we get there, I just want to remind everybody that Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Our shared mission is to get you talking about your money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Whether you are entering the workforce, running a business, taking a break to raise a family, getting ready to retire, Fidelity has tools and resources that can help you understand where you stand today and help you get where you want to go, which is exactly what we're talking about with Liz Bentley. So discover more at fidelity.com slash front seat. You're using the word evolution a lot. How Mm. is it different than change? So change is too abrupt. The word change, people feel like they have to be different than who they are, that there's something wrong. And um, 
when we say the world is changing around us, then we panic because we think, oh, we have to change. We're going to have to change, and I don't know how to change, and what if I can't change? What if I can't be different? What if this is who I am? Um, but if we're trying to evolve, and we're always trying to evolve, and every day we're trying to evolve, that's very doable. That's something we can accomplish because that's just improving on what we are already doing and um, taking more risk. Could you give me an example? Yeah, so I would say, for example, if you're someone who's introverted, okay, you're introverted by nature. You're someone who prefers to work independently, work alone. Going out to a lot of events is exhausting. Lots of in-person meetings can kind of drain you. If you already know this, and we said to you, you know what, this isn't working, and let's say at a certain point in your career, you need to become less introverted because you've got to go out more and see people and give more face time. Right. If we said to someone, you have to change, they would really recoil and think, oh, this is going to be scary. Scary, and I don't want to do that. If we say, look, we, you need to evolve. You don't have to do it all the time. We're not asking you to be an extrovert. We're asking you to fake extroversion two times a week. That is very achievable. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So we just want you to fake extroversion. And here's the benefit. You might enjoy it. Your business is going to grow. You're going to learn things from other people. And then you get to go home and rest. Okay. Right? But if we approach that with change, you might shut down. I get it. I get it. And it's yeah. a little bit of confidence, too. I mean, if you're not feeling particularly confident in asking what you want or putting yourself forward at that table or leaning in, if you can get yourself to fake leaning in That's once right. or twice a week for the staff meeting, yeah. then you can go back to your office and have a sandwich. Right. So the evolution of leaning in is just that you only need to do it in this time. So we don't need you to change. Because if I say change, you're going to fail. If I say you have to lean in more, you're going to think I have to lean in more in the subway, at the coffee store. Right. At the, you know, and all of a sudden, it's going to become so overwhelming. You might even go backwards. So again, if my goal is to help humans perform at a higher level, right, I have to know what's going to get them there. And evolution gets them there. Evolution is something everyone gets excited about. Change is something that makes people shut down. Sometimes when you're trying things for the first time, it doesn't go well, or the mm. second time, it doesn't go well. How, how do you approach failure? Oh, failure is great. <laughs> <laughs> great. We love failure. I don't love failure. Why do you love failure? Because it means you're trying. It means that you're going for something bigger than you. We have a tendency in life to want to take just enough risk not to fail, which means we're really never pushing for who we really are and what we're really capable of. We don't know where the boundary is until we fail. My dad always used to say, it's funny, that he would say when we were young and we were skiing, if you're not having a big wipeout, you're not really trying. And I used to think, I don't want to have a big wipeout. Right. <laughs> and my mother would say, yes, don't listen to him. But I had three brothers who were having wipeouts all over the place, really trying. But I, what I love about that is, um, is it's pushing yourself to the limit. So when we fail, um, we've either pushed ourselves beyond our, our capability or we've done something that's not working. And it's, so it's a great time for us to think about what we could be doing better. And it's a point of growth. When the failure comes, it hurts. Yes. It hurts so much. But what we have to recognize is that from that failure, we have our biggest growth. So we fail, we come back, we do it again? We fail, we adjust, we analyze, and we do it again, and we go for more, or we, or we keep going back. Now, sometimes, so from failure comes the most amount of confidence we can grow. However, many people uh, fail and don't grow confidence and don't come back. It's because they don't have the courage to get back in. I think a lot of people listening are thinking, 
maybe I need a coach. I mean, how, <laughs> no, I think so. How do you know? How do you know if you are in the position where you can hire somebody like you or how much of a financial commitment is it to go through coaching? Can There's all sorts of coaching on the internet. Is it any good? I think everyone needs a coach. You need the strategic advantage, being able to talk to somebody about how how to tackle the things that you're trying to grow around, how to have that insight, how to have that growth. The higher you are in an organization, the more, I think, paramount it is because you have so many moving parts going all the time and you don't have anyone to strategize with to really understand what your growth needs to be and how to mobilize all these different components. I think in smaller positions in organizations, it still has the same value because you're trying to move up the ladder and grow your skill set. And other people can't give you the feedback you need. It's like there's not a single player on the PGA who doesn't have a coach. There's no tennis player who doesn't have a coach. I mean, it's not something people are wondering, should we get a coach or not? So the second you get serious, if you get serious about your career, it's the same as being a tennis player who's serious about their career. You know, tennis players in the fourth grade start getting coaches. Right. But when they have potential to earn millions of dollars, sometimes they get coaches. And sometimes their parents decide that they're going to invest in this for them. I'm sort of thinking about it as if it's a financial advisor, right? I mean, when we when we hire somebody to help us with our money, it's because we're trying to maximize the potential that we have to make that money grow. Same thing? Well, kind yes and no. So first of all, yes, absolutely. And many of our cases, the people who have been in coaching have doubled their income, if not more than that. I coached a, um, a man in San Francisco who is, sells real estate. He's one of the top brokers in San Francisco. The year, the first year we worked together, he went from selling $100 million in real estate sales to $240 million. So he more than doubled his income in one year. And we have stories like that all the time. However, some people don't hire us to make more money. Some people hire us to get better balance. So the fourth grader whose parents hire the best tennis coach they can isn't necessarily thinking someday they might make millions of dollars with this because that's a 20-year investment. They're first starting saying, I hope they win the Eastern (laughs) Regionals, you know, and let's start there. Um, And then, you know, by the time they get to Division I playing and maybe they're number one at Stanford, their coach maybe is more experienced than they were in the fourth grade. And that's kind of what I think you see in the world of coaching as well. If you, you know, we have people approaching us saying, I want you to work with my kids who are graduating from Harvard right now to get this. They know they want this competitive advantage. They're starting out at Morgan Stanley and it's very competitive and we want them to have that strategic advantage. And we have coaches in our cadre. And then we have CEOs who are running very big companies who are looking for the same advice. How do you find a coach that works for you? Um, I, you know, I think you can look for synergy, but I think most coaches should be able to almost work with anyone because they understand the model. You know, it's not, you know, like going, you know, like I said, kind of going back to the tennis coach, you look at the form and you know the game and you can read your player and know what's going to push them to that space. I kind of believe, unlike most coaches, that everyone's coachable and that everyone is a fit. Um, But that's my unique perspective. Because I think being a human behavior expert, you should be able to shift any human and motivate them to understand why growth is more important than not growing. And we will leave it at that. <laughs> Liz Bentley, thank you so much. Where can we find you online? Oh, uh, LizBentley.com. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. Kelly has joined me in the studio. That was a fun conversation. It was. I've never done a career coaching session before. I you had. No. No, have you? No, I haven't. Um, Elliot does some career coaching, as you I know. I know. It's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should, should we give him a plug? 
well, <laughs> I think we just did. <laughs> What's your favorite piece of career advice that Elliot has given you? Well, when I was a young, just out of college person, Elliot told me, don't go to grad school. <gasps> Interesting. He did. So have we ever told our listeners the story of how I met my husband? I don't think so. And I think now's the time. <laughs> so I met Elliot because we had the same professor in college. He's a little bit older than me, but she was a one-woman journalism department when we didn't have a journalism department at Penn. And she had a lot of connections in New York. She did a lot of work for the New York Times Book Review. And she made it her mission to help those of us wayward students who wanted to get a job in journalism find a magazine job. And the way that she did it was by introducing her current students to her former students who all were working in Mm. in the industry. So when I graduated, Elliot was the number two editor at GQ. He was looking for a new assistant, and she sent me to interview with him, and he did not hire me. (laughs) And worse, (laughs) worse, not only did he not hire me, he hired my rival Uh, at the school newspaper. And he says to this day that it was because she got there first, but Mm -hmm. he's also admitted that it was because I was a little too perky, and he thought... (laughs) (laughs) I just think he didn't think he could sort of take me early in the morning. Um, But if he had hired me, because I was the worst assistant ever. What? I was a really bad assistant. What? No, I was. I mean, I was a good assistant in some ways, but I was very ambitious, and I didn't really want to answer the phone, and Mm -hmm. I didn't really want to do all the other assistant stuff. I just wanted to pitch my stories and write my stories, which I was convinced were better than anything they were getting. That's what you need to have, the confidence. You know, and so as a result, I was a bad assistant, and at one point, my boss sat me down and said that she was going to write an article based off of JFK's famous speech that it's not what your country does for you, it's what you do for your country, but she was going to substitute the word company based on me. So, so I had to be I had to be reined in. Oh my god, you've never bit. shared that with me before. Yeah. Yeah, so wow. not my not my proudest moment, but but I uh, so so anyway, our professor passed away sadly i'm going to i'm going to stop kelly's laughter right there with a death in the story oh gosh okay goodness yeah that's <laughs> wipe the smile right off my face no our professor this wonderful woman whose name was nora maggot she passed away maybe 15 years later and um a bunch of us got together to organize this mentorship program at our alma mater for kids coming out of school and still looking to get jobs in journalism which we still do mm-hmm. to this day and we are. We had our lunch for our winners. We have two winners this year, and um, I was very, very taken by the fact that our fifteen years of winners now have. They're just such superstars. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got um, two reporters, three reporters. No, two reporters at the New York Times. Ashley Parker at the Washington Post, who is killing it. So cool. Matt Flagenheimer, Jess Goodman, who's at Cosmo. I am name dropping in journalism here, but I'm just I'm so proud of them. And I'm also really proud that they are now rising up to help the next generation Mm -hmm. of kids coming out who want to work in this field. Yep. So, um, you know, Elliot said after our lunch, which was just a couple of weeks ago, that that's one of the best things that we've ever done. 
And I said, program. yeah, I said, well, marrying me. Ahem, I was just ahem. going to say that. <laughs> I was just going to say that, too. I was like, well, he eventually, you know, he wanted you in a much bigger and better way later. He didn't know it at the time. He didn't know it at the time. So there we there <gasps> oh, we go. I've eaten up all the time we have for it's mailbag. It's such a good story time. We'll do a few questions. Okay. They're quick. I think. All right. We'll do a couple questions. Our first one is from Donna, and it's very fitting for this show. She's wondering, what do I tell my 21-year-old son who graduates in May about starting out with regards to exploring jobs and his finances? So I would tell him two things. With one about jobs, I would say cast a very wide net. Um, Think about not just the advertisements that you're seeing online, because it's so frustrating for so many people to shoot out resumes. They feel like they're going into the vast universe never to be seen or heard from again. Often you don't even get a response. And jobs exist even when they're not advertised. So think about the different companies that you might like to work for and you do the outreach. Don't wait for something to pop up and be advertised. The second thing about jobs is, and I've faced this reluctance with my own kids and I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine on the train about this just today. Don't be afraid to use your connections. Don't be afraid to say, mom, who do you know? Dad, who do you know? Professor, who do you know? Your network's connections will only help you get in the door. They are not going to get you a job. You are going to have to get the job yourself. But if they can get you in the door and help you emerge from the slush pile, Mm -hmm. that's just fine. And it's the way that the world works, sadly. So use it. As far as his finances go, sit down with him Take a look at what he's got coming in and where that money has to go and just help him map it out. This is what I did with my own son. And I think I've told this story before, but one of the things that we figured out was he's living in L.A. and he goes out at night and he doesn't drive if he's drinking, which I wholly support. But he has a big Uber bill at Mm -hmm. the end of the month. And He knew he would have an Uber bill at the end of the month, and we budgeted a lot of money for Uber so that Uber doesn't show up each month as a surprise Mm -hmm. or Lyft or whatever service you happen to like or taxis or a bus. Be realistic about what your expenses are likely to be and work from there. Yep. And – I don't know where they're based. I was just talking about this with my dad, too, because he asked me, he's like, what's your average transportation costs each Mm -hmm. month in New York? And it varies compared like winter to summer because I'm walking more in the spring, summer than I am the fall, winter, but especially the winter. And I told him, too, like I had I learned the hard way of the shock of the, my transportation spilling over over the winter because I took more cars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you can figure out by looking back at what your expenses have been, what mm-hmm. your expenses are likely to be, that's a really good thing to do. And then as soon as you can, force some savings. He may not have access to a 401k immediately. Open a Roth IRA and just start contributing a little bit of money every single month. Okay. And we'll do one more from Sonny. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I'm writing with a quick question about hiring a personal assistant. Are there tax implications for this? How do I go about handling payment? Can I use services like Venmo? Do I need a contract or anything? This would be for personal administrative help outside of my job. It depends on how much you use them. There are IRS limits as far as when you need to start 
paying taxes, payroll taxes for these individuals, um, it might be easiest to actually work through some kind of a service like a virtual assistant type service that can place somebody with you who can just handle tasks. They don't need to be in your town. They don't need to be in your house. They can do it from their house largely. I mean, unless you're looking for somebody to run to the dry cleaner and pick up your groceries, but I would argue you could probably get your dry cleaning delivered and your groceries delivered and and have your virtual assistant do those things that don't need to be done from your place of residence. Mm-hmm. And when I was your assistant, I worked with a number of virtual assistants on behalf of other people that we were scheduling with, and they were fantastic. Well, and the nice thing about virtual assistants is they know how to be assistants. Exactly. And yep. there's And there is... There is a very important skill set involved in being an assistant. I mean, I've always had assistants who want to be reporters because I feel like they're giving me the service of being my assistant, but I'm teaching them how to be a reporter along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, But for a part-time thing or a long-time thing, it it doesn't always work. And I understand I'm going to be training a new assistant every couple of years. Yeah, and well, for, I guess, back to Donna, too, and her son to consider, for me, I think what you can learn as an assistant if you really take advantage of it and think think long term while you're an assistant in ways of like leveraging this like interaction or this like personal experience you're having with your boss I mean it set me up for all the roles that I'm currently doing now for you and the future too so I think actually I'm so grateful that like that was my first job we're talking a lot about assistants today we really are you were yeah. a very good assistant thank I, you <laughs> Thank you me, so not much. so much. Yeah, I was like, yeah, no, I was. <laughs> I was wondering. I was like, oh, uh oh, did she think this about me? <laughs> no, no, you were you were an excellent, excellent assistant. We just couldn't hold you back anymore. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jean, and thank you everyone for your questions. You can ask us your questions at jeanchatsky.com slash podcast. We have a mailbag question box. Great, and on Thrive today. Are you feeling a little more flush than usual? And the sort of flush I'm talking about, by the way, is not a rosy glow. It is a bump in your take-home pay because for many people, the new tax law has resulted in heftier paychecks. But what you need to know is that the overhaul brings other changes that will affect what you owe overall. Brackets have changed. Some deductions were trimmed. The standard deduction doubled. Bottom line is... At the end of this calendar year, 2018, some of that money that you are receiving now may have to be paid back to Uncle Sam. The amazing tax reporter, Laura Saunders, who I have been following since we worked together at Forbes back in the early 1990s, she wrote a story in the Wall Street Journal where she went through the process of why checking your withholding is a fabulous idea for pretty much everyone. In particular, though, it's important for two-earner couples, for filers with large itemized deductions on Schedule A, and for anyone who claims more than two personal allowances. The IRS just also put out a new withholding calculator. It's at irs.gov. You want to go through that and figure out if you need to fill out a new W-4 form to change your withholding. If the calculator says, yes, you do, do it ASAP and give it to your employer so that the changes go through because the longer you wait to do this, the bigger the problem you're going to have 
at the end of the year. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Liz Bentley for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also love hearing what you'd like to hear on the show or topics that you want us to focus on. We actually do read all of our mail. So send it in, send us a review. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We are grateful for you. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. And our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we will be back with another great guest.